Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is Politics with Amy Walter. Thanks for downloading this podcast. You just made my weekend. Okay, election reform. It's been a big topic this week, mostly because of those dramatic hearings in North Carolina, which have led authorities there to order a new congressional election in District 9. It really was quite a drama. The hearings had everything. Fraud allegations, father-son drama. But that's not the only voting and election news of the week. Democrats in Congress have created a special House subcommittee to push for restoration of a recently struck down portion of the Voting Rights Act. That piece required certain states with a history of racial discrimination to get federal approval before changing their voting rules. This week, that subcommittee traveled to Georgia, where they heard testimony from Stacey Abrams. Abrams is a former Democratic state legislator and a longtime voting rights advocate. Last year, she ran for governor and lost. Barely. The man who won, Republican Brian Kemp, was the secretary of state in Georgia and was also the man in charge of overseeing the election. Abrams argued Kemp pursued policies that kept many voters from casting ballots. Kemp insisted his actions were done to prevent voter fraud. Abrams has since started an organization called Fair Fight Action to advocate for election reform in Georgia, which she said at the hearing is needed in a big way. Incompetence and malfeasance operate in tandem, and the sheer complexity of the state's voting apparatus smooths voter suppression into a nearly seamless system that targets voter registration, ballot access, and ballot counting. I asked her what she meant by incompetence and malfeasance operating in tandem in Georgia. We had a secretary of state who released the voter ID information for six million voters, including their social security numbers, their addresses. He did not hold the counties to account for how they treated absentee ballots, which meant that depending on which county you happen to vote in, you got a different form of democracy in Georgia. That is incompetence. Then you couple that with his malfeasance, which was that he took fairly benign rules that are designed to keep voter rolls clean and instead used them as targeted weapons to eradicate voters that he did not think would benefit his elections. This is someone who in 2017 wiped the rolls clean of more than 600,000 voters, the single largest voter purge in a year uh, under his tenure. And he did so right before he decided to stand for office as governor. He manipulated the system by encouraging counties to shut down precincts. More than 200 closed under his tenure. And he took actions that put a chilling effect on people registering to vote, including using an exact match system that a federal judge had told him the previous year before had the disproportionate effect on people of color and women. He agreed not to use the system, and then the following year, after he signed this consent decree, asked the legislature to restore his right to discriminate. That is malfeasance. Going back to the Voting Rights Act, you know, the Supreme Court, their conclusion was, look, things have gotten so much better in these places where we had federal oversight, especially in places in the South, where Jim Crow laws are now gone, and we leave it to the states. Now they can handle this, basically. My question to you is this, what role do you think the federal government should be playing writ large? I mean, it seems we have a system in this country where we decided that we do not want, you know, one single rule or the federal government deciding one size fits all for every single state to have an election or primary elections on every single day with uniform rules. Is that the only way to ensure, though, that 
everybody is treated equally, that the federal government basically needs to take over election funding? Can the states really, truly be allowed to do this on their own? I think the states can be very efficient delivery systems for elections. But what the Voting Rights Act did was set a standard under which those elections could be managed, monitored, and executed. By removing Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, we removed the the guardrails that said, here are the standards within which you have to operate. And the minute those guardrails were removed, we saw bad action happening at an extraordinary pace. I believe that it is absolutely appropriate for there to be a federal standard for democracy in America, that we believe that every vote should count if it is cast by an eligible, legally uh, eligible citizen to vote. But once that is set by the federal government, certainly I, I think that different states should be allowed to determine how those standards are met. Uh, when you live in a remote state like um, Alaska, where it would be nearly impossible to require certain behaviors, or when you live in dense urban areas where there are adjustments made for traffic, absolutely you want local governments to be able to respond to the needs of their communities. But democracy shouldn't differ. You shouldn't not be allowed to vote simply because of where you live. And so I do believe that the federal standards that say you cannot be taxed for voting, which is what happens when you have to stand in four-hour lines because an incompetent secretary of state refuses to provide an adequate number of machines, that that's problematic. That in states where voter suppression activities thwarted the ability of voters to get to the polls because they move the polling places beyond the reach of public transit. Those are deeply problematic decisions and those should not be allowed. And that's what a federal standard can set. It can say that here are the things that we absolutely require for every American. And then the states can determine how they administer that process to ensure the best and most effective means of doing so. There's a lot of talk too about the difference between active voter suppression and just commitment to actual voting. And so I bring up this issue of the reality, it seems, every time there's an election, older people, they go and vote, they are consistent voters, they turn out at higher rates, younger voters, less consistent, turn out at lower rates. So how much of the turnout issue is about enthusiasm and interest? And Is that a big piece of this as well, not simply about sort of the actual roadblocks in the way, but people who just simply feel that they're not that interested in casting a ballot? My concern is for those who are interested in casting a ballot, who find themselves thwarted, elderly African-Americans who show up at polling places where they've been on the rolls for decades, suddenly find their names missing. Those who are standing in lines because they live in a community that was under-resourced because they just didn't think those voters mattered as much. Turnout is a decision made by each individual American, and we as a country do not mandate voting. But when you choose to exercise your franchise, there should be no impediment that is standing in your way. And that's the challenge with voter suppression. We don't know how many people don't vote because it is too hard, because they believe the system is rigged, because they have faced challenges. And that should be the urgent question of the day. Is every voter who wants to vote accorded the opportunity to do so? And right now, I would say the answer is no. 
There was also a topic that was raised, this was a couple weeks ago, a, a new study on voter ID laws. And the study basically looked at voting 2008 to 2016 and found that asking voters for ID had no effect on voter turnout. And we interviewed one of the economists who did this study. I wanted to play a couple of clips and just have you respond to his his findings. So the bottom line of this uh, research is that we don't find any significant effect of strict ID laws either on uh, participation or on voter fraud. My hope is actually to perhaps decrease the polarization on this issue uh, by bringing people to recognize that the laws are not doing what they were hoped to do, which is uh, decreasing voter fraud, and that they are not doing either what people have been afraid that they are doing, which is uh, suppressing participation. That was Vincent Pons, a professor at Harvard Business School and one of the authors of the study. What's your take on his claims? I've not read his study, but here's what I would say writ large about voter ID. Voter ID is often designed to target specific populations and diminish their participation. That is why you've seen those laws crop up in communities where you saw an increase in marginalized communities taking advantage of the right to vote. While as a macro, there may not be a very determinative effect, I do believe that the intent is problematic. I live in a state where your student ID is not a permissible ID for casting a vote, but it's often the only ID held by Generation Z because a lot of them don't drive. And so you create hurdles to voting that to the economist's point, don't increase the security and safety of the electoral process, but may have a specific determinative effect on whether someone decides they're going to try to vote. And my mission is to make certain that the largest number of voices that are legally eligible to be heard are heard. I want to switch gears for a second to you and your campaign. If you want to announce anything, you can do that right now. I appreciate the opportunity, but... Running for Senate? (laughs) I have not made a decision. It will be the end of March. Okay. Oh. All right. Well, let's move on. Nice try. (laughs) Very nice try. I know. Yeah, yeah. It was really subtle. Um, Okay. So let's move on to the other topic. There is a fascinating article you wrote in response to a famous political scientist, Francis Fukuyama, about identity politics. You wrote uh, this in Foreign Affairs magazine, where both of you go back and forth about what identity politics is and what it isn't. And I know that there are many, especially here in Washington, who make the argument that Stacey Abrams lost because she spent too much time focused on identity politics. You talk too much about race. You talk too much about sex and sexual orientation. You didn't talk enough about the bread and butter issues that bring people together, things like the economy, too much on tribalism, not enough on unity. This is a, a point that Fukuyama makes as well. He argues Identity politics focus on cultural issues and its diverted energy and attention away from serious thinking on the part of progressives about how to reverse the 30-year trend in most liberal democracies toward greater socioeconomic inequality. That was a lot. But let's start with this, which is your defense of what Fukuyama is calling identity politics and your campaign approach to these topics. Identity politics is inherent in our politics. We all make decisions based on how we experience our lives. And in my campaign, I very intentionally centered 
conversations about marginalized communities, about communities of color, and did so with an intentionality of engaging them and increasing their turnout. It worked. We tripled Latino turnout, tripled Asian Pacific Islander turnout, increased youth participation rates by 139%. 1.1 million Democrats voted in 2014. 1.2 million African Americans voted for me in 2018. And I still overperformed the white performance rates of John Kerry, Barack Obama, and Hillary Clinton. Not only did I increase the participation rates of those communities, I actually increased the white participation rate for Democrats, which to me is demonstration point that one can have conversations about identity without isolating or losing access. And we did so by centering those identities, but always bringing them back to a core issue, which was to talk about education, to talk about economics, and to talk about healthcare. Those are all issues that manifest themselves differently based on your identity, but are all core to how our lived identities as Americans are made better or worse, depending on who leads the public policy conversation. So this isn't a debate that's just happening in academia or happening between folks on the pages of editorials. This is happening within the 2020 Democratic primary process itself. What's your advice to people who are engaged, involved in the 2020 Democratic process about whether you go full in on, quote unquote, identity politics or whether you in the Francis Fukuyama say we need to focus much more on socioeconomic inequality and focus on the bread and butter issues. You cannot talk about socioeconomic inequality without understanding the socio part of the economic inequality. And I think every candidate needs to remember that voters can see and hear you whether you're talking to them or not. So that if you're having a conversation about class, but you ignore the real issues that are brought to bear by race and gender and sexual orientation. You cannot talk about creating jobs for everyone when you refuse to acknowledge that people can be fired from their jobs in the United States of America because of who they love and who they are. You cannot have a conversation about socioeconomic advancement without acknowledging that there are racial implications to how jobs are allocated and where they go. We cannot have an isolated conversation about economic inequality without acknowledging the socio part. And what is causing the the conversation is that the socio part is what is being reductively referred to as identity politics. So what I would tell every single candidate is that pay attention to identity. Talk about it, but talk about it in the context of your larger policies. I didn't have a specific healthcare policy for left-handed people. I had a healthcare policy, and then I talked about how that healthcare policy could be calibrated to provide support to all of the communities that needed it, because they needed to know I understood that it wasn't just about healthcare, but it was about the specific challenges facing each community with regards to access to healthcare. Talk about the core values, the economic issues, but make certain that you identify, acknowledge, and give credence to the legitimate concerns about how those policies live out in those communities that are concerned that you can't see them. Stacey Abrams, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. This has been a wonderful, wonderful experience. I really appreciate you. Stacey Abrams is the former minority leader of the Georgia House of Representatives and was the Democratic Party nominee in Georgia's 2018 gubernatorial election. We'll keep you posted if she runs for the Senate. All right, now it's time for my take. I'm keeping a close eye on Stacey Abrams. First, because as you heard, she is on the front lines of the internal battle within the Democratic Party about how hard to push so-called identity politics over socioeconomic ones. 
Her argument that she outlines in an article in Foreign Affairs is that, quote, by embracing identity and its prickly, uncomfortable contours, Americans will become more likely to grow as one. But many in the party contend that embracing identity will scare away many of the white voters the party needs to win in key battleground states. The struggle will be an ongoing theme for Democrats in 2020 and probably beyond. Democrats here in Washington are keeping an eye on her, too. They really, 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 really want her to run for the Senate in 2020. Now, getting a majority in the Senate isn't going to be easy for Democrats. They need to net three seats if they win the White House, four if they don't. But to do that, they have to put a state like Georgia in play. That's it. That's my take. But one more quick thing before you pull your earbuds out. There's a second episode in your feed this week. It's the one with Pete Buttigieg talking to me about all things Pete, including his potential run for the presidency. Also, we round up the 2020 Democratic field and talk about how voters are responding to the candidates so far. And check it out. And hey, while you're listening to these podcasts, give us a rating and a review. And extra points for originality, like this reviewer, NerdAlert12345. I love a good nerd alert. Who says the show is, quote, nonpartisan, insightful rock star host. Well, 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 thank you, Nerd Alert. I can dig that. So go get that second podcast if you haven't already. And if you have, thanks for listening. I'll see you soon. This is Amy Walter.